Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. The title tonight of the message is The Lying Heart. The Lying Heart. Just a brief review of, of last week, chapter 16, before we move, we move on in 17. If you remember in chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, last week, God had described to Judah in detail what their judgment was going to be like, what was going to happen. And then in chapter 16, verse 10, it seems like Judah developed an attitude with God after he told them the reason that he was going to bring judgment upon them. You know, it's like they were challenging the Lord as to why do you pronounce all this great disaster against us, God? You know, what's our iniquity? What's our sin? What have we done? You know, as if they were totally innocent and that there wasn't any reason that they should be charged with anything worth speaking of, that God would, would bring judgment upon them. And so their challenge was answered in chapter 16, verses 11 through 12. You know, you know, God says, so you want to know why I pronounced all this great disaster against you? You want to know uh, what your iniquity is and what your sin is? And then God gives them a clear and complete answer to the question. God, but God doesn't just tell them, hey, guys, look, just trust me because I have a good reason for why I'm bringing judgment, even though that would have been enough. But God says, here's why I'm bringing the judgment. He says, it's because your ancestors were unfaithful to me. They worshiped other gods and served them. They abandoned me and did not obey my word. And you are even worse than your ancestors. You stubbornly follow your own evil desires and you refuse to, to listen to me. That was in chapter 16, verses 11 through 12. The righteous God is never angry without a good reason. But he has to tell the people what their specific sin is. Why? So that they can be convicted and humbled. And, then, and God can be justified in his charges against them. You see, what happened is they ignored God's institutions. He ignored the laws that set, God set up for them. And they got tired of God's laws. They, got, they, they were you know, basically too simple and too dull. And so they walked after other gods, that is, idols, you know, whose worship was more lively and spectacular. It was more exciting because they liked variety and they liked new things. They served them and they worshiped them. And this was the sin that God had condemned in the second commandment about not having gods or other idols before or worshiping them. And so the people, you know, they, they, and it's like people today, you know, in, in church too, especially in church, people, you know, they just, you know, after a while, well, we want something new. We want something more exciting, something more spectacular. And they find it, well, they're doing this over here, and, and this is going on over there, and, and, you know, it's a new thing, it's a new trend, and, and you know what, Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, Satan will dress it up in a different wrapping, but when you open it up, it's the same thing. God would judge their children, the people's children, who kept up these idolatrous practices, because the children received them, they learned these idolatrous practices by tradition from their parents. 
And God judged them for their own iniquities, verse 12 said in chapter 60. You've made your father's sin your own, but you've done even worse than your ancestors. They were more disrespectful and stubborn in their sin than their ancestors were because they walked after the imaginations of their own heart, after the dictates of their own heart. They made their heart their guide. They were led by the emotions of their heart. They let their heart be their rule. And they were determined on following their heart rather than listening to God and his prophets. But here we have even more to answer their question about why God was bringing the judgment. So let's begin in chapter 17, verse 1. And it begins, The son of Judah... I'm sorry, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. A pen of iron and the point of a diamond are used to to emphasize the deep-seated characteristic of Judah's sin. The iron pen and the diamond were used for engraving on the hardest substances known at that time. And here God says that that a pen of iron and the point of a diamond, you know, was was used to, to write on the tablets of their heart. Their hearts were so hard. And again, the, the, the pen of iron and the point of a diamond were, were, were used for engraving on the hardest substances known at that time. Jeremiah said that the sin of Judah had become so deeply engraved on their heart. Speaking of the inner being, that ordinary means aren't enough to remove it. Sinning had become her nature. It, had been a, it, was, it was established in their nature. It was settled in their nature. Her affection, her state of mind, her will, speaking of Judah, had been molded and fixed into one direction so that evil had become the controlling mindset of their life. Evil was a state of their being. In Genesis 6, 5, God said, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nothing's changed. Forgiveness could never change this situation. God has no way of dealing with a sinful nature except to break it into pieces. Like a potter breaks a clay pot and then he makes something new out of the pieces. But the sin of Judah went way beyond their hearts. It showed up on the horns of their idolatrous altars, God said. Now this could mean that the names of the gods that they worshipped may have been written on the altar. Now the horns of the altar, if you've ever seen a picture of the altar back in biblical times, they were these, these, these like horns that, that out of each corner stuck out. Those are called the horns of the altar. They were stone projections at the top of each altar on the four corners. There was evil in everything the people did. It even got into their religion. Like it says, it may even mean that they wrote the names of their gods on their altars. Verse 2. He says, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills, pagan ideas and practices had corrupted the temple worship so badly that the only thing, think of this, the only thing that children could remember is the heathen way of doing things. God's prescribed religion had all but been forgotten. 
And the temple worship had become so distorted and so twisted, there was no possible way of changing it. And God had commanded that both the nation and the temple were to be broken in pieces in order that a totally new start could be made. The only thing that the people could look forward to for the time being is punishment and loss. Verse 3. Oh, my mountain in the field, speaking of Jerusalem, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, I'm going to give all of your wealth and all of your treasures to the spoil and your high places of sin as the price of your sin throughout all your territory. Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah were demolished and robbed by the Babylonians. The remaining treasures of the temple of God were carried, by, uh, carried to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar's army, and even the idolatrous cultic sinners were destroyed. A wrong belief in Jeremiah's day was that the people thought God would easily and quickly forgive sin, just like many do today. That they, they believe that, or think that God you know, takes sin lightly, that it's not really a big deal. And that the standard ritual, the, the, the standard routine, you know, to, you know, wait, well, Lord, you know, I, you know and, and, and half-heartedly confess what they did, they thought that immediately that would take care of the problem. And comfortable preaching would assure them that, hey, your sin is removed. It's okay. But the truth is, it was just the opposite. And don't be mistaken. God does not pamper sin. He does not tolerate sin. And just because he doesn't execute judgment right away on sin, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he doesn't see it. God God does not pamper sin today like many people would believe. He has only one plan for sin and that's to destroy it. Romans 6, 6, Paul said, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with. Sin cannot be neutralized. It cannot be restrained. It cannot be suppressed. It must be crucified, killed, wiped out. In verses 2 and 3, the trees, the high hills, and the mountains that are mentioned there, it refers to the usual places where the people would, would perform their idol worship. Verses 4 through 8, he goes on to say, and, even, and you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit." God's hatred of Judah's sin is shown to us here in what he said in verse 4. He says, you have kindled a fire in me which will burn forever. And he's sworn eternal vengeance on man's nature that's opposite to the nature of God. 
And sometimes we think that we can depend upon certain men, certain people, even ourselves, or, a, a cer- or certain political parties to work out the world's problems. You and I are cursed with great evil. Cursed people if we put our trust in men and what men can do. This is the day. It's always the day to trust in God. In verse 6 here, we have a reminder of Psalm 1 where Jeremiah compares the fate of the person who trusts in man with the fate of someone who trusts in God. Depending upon the flesh is the direct opposite of depending upon the spirit. And it shows us the uselessness and the weakness of man as well as all earthly things. They're weak. They're useless. The man who trusts in the flesh, that is, all temporary things, it says in verse 6, shall be like a shrub in the desert. It won't have any life. It won't grow. The picture in verse 6 of parched places, a salt land in the wilderness, is used to discourage sinners. And on the other hand, the man who puts his trust in the Lord flourishes even in time of drought, and and they won't be anxious. Verse 8 says they won't be afraid. And since he's found the secret sources of God and can safely and securely and comfortably endure, he can endure all calamities of life. The evil man is still stressed out even in good times, prosperous times. Why? Because he can't cut, he, he, he can be cut off at any time. And then in verses 7 through 8, we see the characteristics of the blessed man. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. Look at verse 8. For he, notice he, here's the results of a blessed man. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. This is a picture of of, of one that flourishes in adverse circumstances. Second, which spreads out its roots by the river. All right. Secondly, these are hidden resources. The secret of his strength, speaking of those roots hidden underground. They're the what's make the make what makes the tree firm. And then it says, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green. He won't be afraid. Notice he 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 he, he lives without anxiety. He won't be afraid. Uh, and will be anxious uh, will not be anxious in year of drought. So again, he won't be anxious. He'll live without anxiety. And then he says in, in verse eight, the last verse or the last sentence: Nor will cease from yielding fruit. He will produce fruit. So those are the ca- characteristics of the blessed man. He's gonna f- he'll flourish in adverse circumstances. Those hidden sources are the secret of his strength. Those roots where he's grounded and rooted in the Word of God in God. And he lives without anxiety and he produces fruit. Verses 9 through 11. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. I will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. Now, Jeremiah speaks about the sinfulness of man's heart. You need to know that man's heart 
is always under the heavenly inspection of God. Man's heart is always seen by God. He sees right into our hearts. So it's foolish to trust in man. Not just because man is weak, but man is insincere and he's deceitful. And many times we're likely to think that we trust in God. This is how deceiving our heart is. We think we trust in God. And we think we're entitled to the blessings that are here promised to those who trust in Him. But this is something even our own hearts deceive us about as much as anything else. We think that we trust God when we really don't. And it's made known to us by this. That our hopes and our fears, they rise or fall based on our feelings and our circumstances. And in order to understand verses 9 and 10, the Hebrews use the physical organs to symbolize the activities of man's inner life. The word heart here in verse 9, the way it's used here signifies the inner man. Or essential self, from where all action, from where the will and reasoning come from. The heart is the seat of the emotions. And Jeremiah here is saying that the heart, man in his essential being, the inner man, is deceitful and treacherous. That's what he's saying in verse 9. In addition to that, man's heart is desperately wicked or diseased would be more accurate. It's sick. It's incurable. Jeremiah has recognized that Judah's problem stems from the heart or the inner character of the people. He's saying treacherous is the heart, the heart of the men of Judah above all things, and it's incurably sick. Who can understand the true nature of the heart? Nobody but God. Since pagan nations were considered even more wicked than Judah, man, this treacherous heart has to be typical of all men. How many times have you heard somebody say, you know, when they've done something, that they can't believe they would do that? I can't believe that, that, that I did that. I can't believe that I said that. That's not me. <laughs> There's where the heart is deceiving you. That's exactly who you are. All it takes is the right situation, circumstances to bring the real you out of you. That's it. Our hearts deceive ourselves. It's typical of all men. The passage clearly teaches us for something is that 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 for sure something is desperately wrong about man. And Jeremiah, with all the skill of a marksman, with all the, like, like a sharpshooter, he was aiming at the exact source of man's sickness, of what's wrong with man, as well as, as pointing to the one who can bring healing to that man. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I, the Lord, am constantly searching the heart. He says, I test the mind. I am constantly testing and examining the mind. I'm examining man's deepest longings and his greatest loves. Jeremiah sees that man in his experience-based situation, and we are experience-based people, is full of contradictions. 
Again, like I just said, he doesn't understand himself. I can't believe I did that. I don't know why I did that. That's not me. They don't even understand themselves. And again, how many times have we said, well, you know, I know my own heart. I would never do that. But we truly don't know our own hearts. Only God knows our hearts. And he searches the heart. And he searches the mind. And he knows exactly how to judge and reward each person. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows the words that that are going to come out of our mouth before they do. Warren Wiersbe said it very simply. He said, the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. And the human heart is deceitful and it's incurable and only God can deal with the heart of man. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or know my troubles and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, that's what we have to do. We have to come to God and Lord say, show me my heart, search my heart because you know my heart and show me the wickedness that's in my heart and then lead me in the way of everlasting life. Verse 11. So is he, I'm sorry, as, par, as a partridge that broods and does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at his end he will be a fool. Verse 11 emphasizes the uncertainty of riches when they're obtained in the wrong way. The Hebrews believed that the partridge took over the nest and hatched the eggs of other birds. And for a little while, uh, the, the, the mother bird would strut around with her baby chicks that weren't really hers. And she'd strut around and be putting on a big show. But pretty soon, those little chicks would leave. They'd take off and they'd leave their phony mother at the exact time that she needs them the most. And she's left looking foolish. Jeremiah says it's the same with money and riches that have been gotten in dishonest ways. He says that's the way it is with dishonest riches. It's likely to fly away just when a man needs them the most. Verse 12. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. This is man's only hope. A glorious high throne. All men have deceitful hearts. Dirty hearts, wicked hearts. But there's a sanctuary. There's a glorious high throne from the beginning, Jeremiah says in verse 12. It's the place of our sanctuary. What is a sanctuary? It's not just a place of worship. It's also a place of safety. It's a, it's a, a, a place you know, of peace as well. Remember, God gave his people certain cities that were to be cities of refuge, sanctuaries where they could go to be protected. And and you all know that we are living in very difficult 
and evil days today. It's not safe anymore to walk the streets of our cities. We can't even let our children play outside alone. We're not even safe in our own land anymore. And now because, again, you know, for these that don't want the police to be involved, you know, defund the police and, and, and the police being hindered from doing their job, we have violence like never before. People we see have the, the freedom to rob stores as long as it's under so much money. We have the smash and grab now. We have more home invasion robberies than ever before. We're not even safe in our own homes anymore due to home invasion robberies. And exactly, Habakkuk nailed it. Habakkuk won for And it's because it says, The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. Man, Habakkuk nailed it. Isaiah said in chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise, notice, wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own, own sight. And these are the progressive and work of Isaiah's day. Those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. But there's a sanctuary where we can go. And it's the high throne of God. The one who sits in the heavens. That's the place where we can go. And God asks us to come by faith. Verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. All those who forsake God will be ashamed. He says, those who depart from me, he says, those who reject my message. In verse 13, it says, notice, those who, this, the second part, it says, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Those who forsake God, those who reject his message, they're going to be like, like those whose names are written in the earth. It's not going to be there very long. Those who trust in the Lord will pass away like words written in the dirt. He says, because you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Jeremiah is very aware of God's might and power. But he suddenly remembers his own miserable situation and how his enemies mocked him. So he prays to the Lord here, verse 14. Heal me, Lord. Save me, because they say to me, notice in verse 15, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. What's this message from the Lord you talk about, Jeremiah? Why don't, you, why don't your predictions come true? Verse 16, as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Here, Jeremiah defends himself before God insisting he didn't want the job of delivering a message of doom nor has he tried either to hurry God in bringing the day of judgment and he asks God to remember that the persecutors aren't just his enemies alone they're not just Jeremiah's enemies alone but they're God's enemies too and so he's asking for protection and he's asking for justification verse 17 
Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. He says, Lord, don't be a terror to me. Be, be comforting to me. He says, God, you're my hope. When everything is threatening me and my life is, is, is pressing in on me, he says, I depend upon you. When you, by faith, make God your trust, he will comfort you, even in the worst of times. As long as it's not due to your own fault. If we put our trust in him, we have no need to be afraid of him. Verse 18. Let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me, uh, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Jeremiah's words and actions challenged the people's behavior, moral, moral behavior. He had spoken openly against the king. He had spoken against the officials, the priests, and the prophets, and the scribes, and the wise. Those who persecuted him should have paid attention and encouraged him. Jeremiah was not afraid to speak what was unpopular. The people either could obey him or shut him up. Well, they chose to shut him up. They thought they didn't need him. Because, you see, their false prophets told them what they wanted to hear. You know, and we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond? How do you respond to criticism? We need to listen carefully to criticism because it might be that God is trying to tell you something through the criticism. God's ministers have work to do. And they don't need to be ashamed or afraid to do it. But they do need God's grace to go on without shame or fear. And Jeremiah says there, Lord, don't let me experience shame or, or, or dismay. Jared didn't want this terrible day of judgment to come upon his country in particular. He only wanted this judgment to come on his persecutors in a just and holy anger because of their wickedness. It was nothing personal. So he prays, Lord, bring on them the day of doom, those that were persecuting him. And he was hoping that if God brought judgment upon them, the ones persecuting him, it might stop the judgment from coming on the whole country. If they, the ones persecuting him, were taken away and God would bring judgment only on his persecutors, the people would be better off. So he, has, he says, destroy them, God, with a double destruction. Let them be totally destroyed, root and branch, everything. Now, Jeremiah is not praying for revenge. Nor is he praying that, that life might be easier for him. But that the Lord may be known by the judgment that he brings upon the people. Verses 19 and 20. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Starting here, Jeremiah is given a message to deliver at the gates of Jerusalem. He's instructed to tell the people and the kings of Judah about keeping the Sabbath day. They were clearly violating the Sabbath day by carrying on their regular activities. It was business as usual on the Sabbath. They weren't making it a day of rest and a day of worship. They carried their produce from the field to the city. They sold their merchandise, totally disregarding God's law of the Sabbath. 
Jeremiah was going to fix this problem. Not because he was a legalist, but because of the deeper things that were suggested by their, their actions. Their actions of dishonoring the Sabbath were the sign of the moral decay of the nation. You know, it, it spoke about greed for material gain. They're more interested in making money than worshiping God. It spoke of wickedness in high places and forgetting about the things of God. God had given the Sabbath to the Israelites as a special gesture of their relationship with him. And in both the Old and New Testament, the Sabbath was meant to be a day of joyful honor to God and spiritual and physical refreshment for the people. And the nation that dishonors the Sabbath soon forgets about the God who made the Sabbath. An emotionless, unthinking, Routine obedience to the Sabbath law wasn't what God wanted. He wanted obedience. He wanted them to, to obey the Sabbath because it was coming from their hearts. Because they loved God and they reverenced Him. Again, they just didn't want Him to do it as, well, you know, it's, it's routine. We, we, we just, you know, we got to do it. It's the law. No. God wanted them to do it again from their hearts. They, because they love God and they reverenced him. And if this were the case, the promise to the people was that if they kept the Sabbath, then they'd obey all of his law. And God could bless them. And he could bless their kings and their city. And verse 25 says, it shall remain forever. If they continued to disobey the law and dishonor the Sabbath, God would have to punish them by destroying the city. And destroying their temple. And a fire would be kindled that would devour the palaces of Jerusalem, verse 27 says. So, let's look at verse 27. Let me go back here a bit. Let's go through 21 through 27. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but notice, hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they did not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, notice, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it, then shall you enter the gates of this city, kings and princes, sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, and they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever." And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem and from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. Verse 27, but if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire, kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So Jeremiah faithfully and courageously delivered God's messages to the people. He, he, he lifted his prayers to the Lord. He poured out his heart his heartache over the sins of the nation, and yet the people 
only hardened their hearts and they stubbornly resisted God's truth. It was, at a, it was a time of unconcern and indecision. Jeremiah was burdened and determined and God honored him. Now, looking at Jeremiah's ministry through man's eyes, it was a flop. He failed. But in God's eyes, Jeremiah's ministry was an outstanding success. You know why? Because he gave the message that God told him to give. You see, the results come from God. We are called to be faithful, not successful, not eloquent, not brilliant, not talented, faithful. God said, Jeremiah, you tell the people the message that I have for them. Judgment is coming because they've forsaken me and they've turned to idols. And he did that. That's why God says, hey, your message, your, your, your ministry is a success. Again, God brings the, bring, God is responsible for the outcome. And this is what we need today. Men and women like Jeremiah, with Jeremiah's quality and faithfulness in serving the church. But there is a price to pay for being faithful to God. But the rewards are everlasting. Eternal life. Father, we thank you again for Jeremiah and God, the wonderful message in this wonderful book, God. And may we learn from Jeremiah, God. May we learn the basic principles of just being obedient to you, Lord. Leaving everything else in your hands, God. You've called us to go. And as long as we go, we've done what you've told us to do, God. Go and speak. Go and do. And the rest is left up to you. So, Father, help us to be obedient. Help us to be faithful to the call to which you've called us, Lord. Help us to fulfill the ministry you've given us. Whatever that ministry might be, God. Whether it's at home, the workplace, in the street, Lord, in the church, wherever it might be, God. Let us be faithful to you in all things, God. So, Father, we thank you. And, Lord, may you bless your people as they, as they go their way, God, and, and just be with them for the rest of the week, God. And we look forward to, to meeting again, God, on Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.